The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, it's a lot of activities you get to have. <laughs> Sometimes we call what we do humans anonymous. Just keep it simple. Everybody's welcome. Um, so thank you for the intro and invitation for us to be here. And uh, I'll talk a little bit, and then Dominique will talk a little bit, and we'll take some questions as well. So I've, uh, for about, can you hear me all? Okay. Yeah, good. I've worked in prison for about 17 years. First as the director of the Inside Prison Project, where we pioneered a restorative justice program where victims and offenders meet for dialogue. Um, those are um, done in groups, and so they're not the actual offender's relationship with the actual victims, but they're people that have gone through similar crimes. Inside Out um, is an initiative to kind of bundle everything that was learned into one technology. And, and we've called that GRIP, Guiding Rage into Power. And it also um, employs some former life sentence men to work with challenged youth in the community, sort of taking what was learned on our side of the pipeline to the other side of the pipeline to prevent uh, the famous flow-through. And these men are called change agents, proudly. We have COs inside, that's correctional officers, and we have CAs on the outside now, that's change agents. So the program has four elements to it. It um, stops, it's about stopping your violence and understanding what violence is. It's about cultivating mindfulness, developing emotional intelligence, and understanding victim impact. It's a, it's a year-long program. And uh, the group of people that comes together to do it, we run a number of, of classes, is called a tribe. And um, the men are welcomed into the tribe and they're welcomed into reminding each other of who they really are, because at the moment of the crime, they obviously forgot. So we make this distinction between somebody's action and somebody's person. Um, we call that smart on crime rather than tough on crime. Um, the men uh, create a learning community in this tribe. They make their own agreements on how to be there. They sign a pledge on uh, the kind of conduct they, they uh, aspire to. And one of the pledges is that uh, you can make mistakes, uh, but then share it with the group so that we can learn from it. So we call it a classroom, not a courtroom. And um, the name of each tribe is based on uh, the amount of years the men have served together. And that includes juvenile time, time in county jail, etc. So 
The Tuesday group is the 928 tribe, and the Friday group is the 936 tribe, because that's the amount of years these men have served together. So those are long sentences. They're life sentences with parole, meaning uh, you can appear for a parole board that can grant you a release, which is, doesn't happen that much, but it could. So uh, when we tally that up, that's, that's a, that sits in the room for a moment. It gets quiet usually, you know, 936, 928. It's a lot of time. It's a millennium among 34 men. And then we do some more calculations. We calculate the moment of imminent danger, you know, which is the f- moment you flashed and crossed the boundary, committed your crime. Usually a rather quick moment you know, when you're triggered. Um, so that moment gets added up, too. People get to ask, how long do you guess you were in that moment? And so for one group that was one hour and 12 minutes and 10 seconds, so you have 936 years and an hour and 12 minutes here. And then the commitment is made to never lose a moment like that again. And the whole year is about learning how to do that. So the moment of imminent danger is what we call that moment where you lose it. It's the moment between anger and violence. It's also the moment between craving and using. And it's over like that. So we try to grow that window. And it's got three characteristics. One is everything speeds up. Two is everything intensifies. And three is there's usually a moment of regret afterwards. Right? Those of you in long-term relationships are nodding your heads right now. <laughs> you know, we're all doing time, right? Just, there's a, a prison between our ears that takes quite a bit of uh, attention. So we thought we'd share some of that with you today about what we're learning and hoping that it you know, might apply to your own lives and your own way of doing time. So, um, we look at violence in a pretty encompassing way. You know, we, we look at it as a, a secondary feeling. You try this out for yourself. You know, next time you get angry, have a little bell go off in your mind and ask yourself, am I hurting? Am I afraid? Or am I experiencing some kind of shame or humiliation? And you'll, you'll find there's at least one at all times. Marshall Rosenberg called violence a tragic expression of an unmet need. So we, we look at these crimes as inarticulate pleas for help. Damn inarticulate, mind you, you know, at times. But, but for help nonetheless. And the courts you know, deal with the facts and with great inequity as to how much you could afford representation. But nobody deals with the wounds, right? So that's one thing we do. I had, I'm 
fond of telling this little anecdote. I had a shot caller for the Crips sitting in the class. The shot caller is, um, a, you know, a boss, a leading person. Crips is one of the gangs that primarily operates in L.A. Big guy, you know, sitting there like with his arms crossed, not saying much, but, but coming every week. And then we paired him up with a bigger guy. <laughs> and uh, they knew each other from, from, uh, from uh, their youth. And this bigger guy was in for domestic violence. And the other, you know, he was called Brother G, the other one's called Warlock. And uh, Warlock was in for murder. And, and something started happening. And um, one day, a warlock holds his hand up and says, I got it. I said, okay, what did you get? He said, hurt people, hurt people. He said, and I lashed out because there was all kinds of pain. I didn't know what to do with And then his apprentice put his hand up too. He said, I got something too. I said, well, what did you get? He said, healed people, heal people. He said, because this brother has been helping me, and it's healing me. And then both those men wept. <coughs> and, and so did the rest of us. That was the whole program in eight words. So we discussed types of violence, emotional violence, energetic violence, economic violence. And in a way, you know, related to our practice here, you could have a perspective on violence where it seems that in our modern world we've placed mind over sentience rather than the original way that it looks like it was intended, which is for mind to serve sentience. So this gives us rationalization to pollute the planet, to go to war, to have power over. And when you look at it that way, it becomes quite interesting. So there's an inherent capacity of the sentient or the embodied organism for wisdom. There's a self-regulating intelligence in what organizes life in all its forms. So sentience is a sacred gift, and the mind, when trained, right, can be a faithful servant. Albert Einstein said something interesting about that. He said, we have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. So we're trying to create a little pocket of sentient culture in, in the hell realm, if you will and having a great time doing it. Um, even though we deal with very serious matters, there's a, a, a real tenderness often, you couldn't pick another word for it, in how these men uh, help to liberate each other and how they speak truth. One of the exercises we engage in, we call two kinds of pain or cause and effect, where we speak about original pain, which is sort of the hand of cards you get dealt, right? There's 
um, in all of our heads, some trauma that leaves an imprint on us, that conditions us. And then there's secondary pain, also sometimes called karmic pain, which is uh, what happens when you in some way don't process that original pain. So secondary pain is caused by avoiding the original pain. And the men fill in a diagram of the, the traumas that created the original pain and then how they reacted to it. And then they also fill in what their moment of realization was and how they're replacing those behaviors, not the acts, you know, that's done, but the behaviors with positive behaviors. And so part of that is we write letters of unfinished business to people that we've heard when we haven't known what to do with our own pain. And so the tribe is used to read those letters out loud and to locate that pain and express that pain. They're often very touching letters. And individually, we have a practice called sitting in the fire, where we learn to tolerate difficult sensations. And you sit in the fire, you burn clean and leave ashes. You don't do it in one full sweep. You take bites. But this is, uh, you know, a way that we work with mindfulness that turns mindfulness into kind of a subtle transformative energy that dissolves our attachment to these pain, to these wounds. Uh, Unlike, you know, psychology, which often seeks to solve things, right? You see the difference of dissolving and solving there. Um, so the premise of sitting in the fire is to understand that the causes and the conditions of this overwhelming feeling, um, most of it is fear, if you take a close look, <coughs> lie within me. Right? So, so there's no pointing. There's no, nobody to blame. Blame is our acronym for blatant lying and making excuses. <laughs> And so, you know, it gets, it gets owned by, our virtue, by the virtue of the fact that you can choose how to respond to this pain. You exercise the premise that the causes and the conditions of it lie within me. We have other acronyms. One is called STOP, which is um, to stop to observe and practice. This is a, a lot of what we learn to do here, right? As we learn how to stop. And there's another one uh, called Q-tip. Quit taking it personal. <laughs> now, these are sort of fun, gimmicky things, but there's practices involved to learn how to do that, that as you well know. Um, there was um, a wonderful visit we had last week where uh, one of the survivors uh, came in to talk with the man. This was a woman, a young lady, whose father had killed her mother. And um, 
mother was a mental patient. And it was a bit of an accident. But not all of it, of course. And uh, I brought her in two years before, and there was a man in the room that had committed a crime like that and killed his wife. And uh, it was an eye-opening experience for him to meet this woman. And so he was there too for the new group, for both of them to teach what they had learned. And uh, the prisoner who, after 33 years, had been given a release date, partially based on his testimony in the board hearing about what he had learned from, from this woman, said that when he first met her, he went home to his cell, kind of envious of her father, because he had a son, and the son just didn't know what to do with it. And he, he said, you know, I've always wished to have a daughter, because I'm kind of mental, and seems like I would have learned something different if I had a daughter. And she turned to him and said, you know, I've always wanted to have a father that took full responsibility for his actions. And the two of them held hands because you can't hug in prison. And one of them for a moment had a father and one of them had a daughter. And so that kind of magic can happen, you know. That sort of humanity can be restored. Ryuka said, perhaps everything terrible is but something helpless that wants our love, that wants our attention. So in, in many ways, what we learn is that um, forgiveness is an attitude that you enter the moment with. You know, it's not something that you is the result of a certain action. David Ridge said that. And we also learn that love is not just a feeling, but it's, it's a way of being present. You know, there's no other way to call it. And it can be cultivated in the most unlikely places. So next to me is the most unlikely person from a place like that. My, my dear friend Dominique. And um, it's really uh, a thrill to sit next to him here, rather than inside. And uh, I'm going to hand the mic to you. For, do you have one of those things? You think this would be better? Okay. First of all, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for allowing me to be here. Uh, I'm going to give you a brief synopsis of my story. Uh, I was born and raised in New York to a very dysfunctional family. I, my parents were both professionals, but they were alcoholics and drug addicts in their, mean, in their free time, which wasn't free time for us, really. And uh, through my journeys of watching them do what they did, I ended up 
doing the same thing as I became a young adult through college, dropped out of college, went in the Navy, dropped out of that. I was pretty good at dropping out of things for quite a long time. And in the meantime, uh, between my drug abuse and trying to support my habit, I could end up committing crimes against other people. Not really violent crimes, but still crimes in itself. All crimes to me is pretty much violent in some way or fashion, you know. So first of all, I, you know, I do apologize to anybody here that's a survivor of crimes. You know, I, I apologize to you, not just for me, but for whoever perpetrated that crime against you. And uh, as things progress, I've started going in and out of prisons at different times for stealing cars. I still, you know, just trying to support my habit. And it's over and over I kept doing this. And then finally I was caught up in this California three strikes. And I was sentenced 25 years to life for auto theft of a rental car that I actually rented. I just didn't turn back in time. But because I had prior commitments for stealing cars, they said, well, you had no intentions of bringing this car back. So I was eventually sentenced to 25 years of life. At first, that was, uh, I really thought that was a curse. But as time went on, it really was a blessing. Because the process that it would take me through, I would become the person that I am today. Because I think if God would have told me 53 years ago, Dominic, this is what you'd go through to be who you are today, I would have said, I'm good, I'll stay where I'm at. <laughs> I don't think I would want to do that. But, you know, through my journey, it, it's been a rough one. But I think the greatest blessing I had was going to San Quentin and being a part of Jock's group, Mindful Meditation and um, Grip, Guiding Rage and the Power. Because it would make a lot of us, especially for us African-American males, it would make us address issues that we'd never want to address. No one wants to bring out, you know, bring out your dirty laundry. You know, I know as a kid, my parents were like, look, what happens in this house stays in this house. You, know, you don't tell everybody that you know, there's domestic violence in here, that we do drugs and all that. So that was tough. So growing up, I had a lot of anger. And I, was, I was angry at everybody and didn't know why I was angry. But as I started getting into these groups, I say, you know what, there's got to be something. All these things that I'm doing are distractions. I have to get down to the core belief of what, what's causing me to do these things. And I started realizing these childhood issues that I had never addressed, it was time to address those issues. And I got a chance to do that through these programs. And these programs, I really believe, you know, it's your best bet for your taxpayer money. <laughs> Because the money they throw into prison industrial complex is ridiculous, you know. But if they spent more money in programs like this, GRIP, where people get to address these issues, your childhood issues, you, you, people get to come out like me and be, you want to be a server, you want to give back. Because I've taken so much from people in my, in my, you know, my time. So now that I've learned the skills how to do that, now it's my chance to do that. And I have to remember I'm representing the guys that are still in there that are not coming out, you know, because those guys pretty much were my family. You know, I didn't have any family here in New York, I mean, in California. So my 17 years there, it was pretty much, I was on my own. And then what really happened was about five years ago, this really was the turning point for me. I was diagnosed with um, terminal cancer. So they, uh, my doctor said, look, Mr. Whitaker, we don't think that you'll probably live a couple more years. And I was like, ah, yeah, right, I don't believe that crap. You know, I was in denial. 
But the funny thing about that was uh, I remember there was a lady I befriended there, and she was, she was like 76, and we would get cancer at the same time, a cancer treatment, chemo. So one day this lady told me, she said, look, Whitaker, she said, I know I'm not supposed to talk to you because you're a prisoner, but I'm going to tell you this. They told me that five, 20 years ago that I was going to die, and I'm still here. So don't believe that crap. You know? <laughs> I said, yeah, okay, whatever. And it's funny, I, 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 really, I was telling Jock this in the car. I really didn't mean to bring it to you guys, but it's always funny when I would think about this. On my worst days when I felt bad in chemo, you know, when you were a prisoner, you had to come in with your orange bright suit on. And I would come in, and it seemed like she always knew the days I would feel bad because she'd have her sunglasses on when I come through the door. I said, Agnes, what's that about? She said, I don't know what's killing me worse, that orange suit or this chemo. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, how does this lady know? You know? But, you know, she passed away a, few, a couple years ago. But I always remember, the last thing she told her, her daughter to tell me, she said, tell Whitaker because she knows I'm a marathon runner. She says, tell Whitaker, a good horse never looks back. And I always remembered that, you know. Because like the doctor told me I wouldn't survive, since then I've ran, Jack knows I've ran five marathons since then. And I'm still alive. So I figured that God has a plan for me. And every morning I wake up, I, I always remember, there's something else he wants me to do. It's like I'm being here today. I would have never thought two years ago I'd be sitting here talking to you guys. Actually, I didn't think I'd be alive. Well, I did kind of think I'd be alive. Because I told my doctor, I think I'll outlive him. And he kind of thought that was funny. But uh, these programs, like Zach was saying, are really fundamental for us. Because I think that when a person gets a chance to really sit down and discuss with other people around him what made him do the things he's done, he gets a better understanding of who he is and what he's done and which way he can go. It It gives you hope. Because a lot of us didn't have hope. We were just like, you know what? We're sitting 25 years of life in this rotten place, and we're going to die there. You know, and Hotel California is not Hotel California in San Quentin. That's what it's not. You know, so these programs have really helped me, and I think it's helping a lot of them. And one thing, this, this little thing I always write, I wrote, uh, has to do with our children. And it's called the glass children. All parents damage their children to some degree. It cannot be helped. Youth, like pristine glass, absorbs the prints of its handlers. Some parents smudge, others crack, and a few shatter their childhoods completely into jagged little pieces beyond repair. Then there's others that love their children beyond measure. And for some of us, we didn't have that. You know, some of us, we were really damaged by our childhoods. But it doesn't condone my behavior. I, I don't say it condones my behavior because I knew the difference between right and wrong. It's just that I chose the wrong path. And now that I've given the chance to, to travel the right path, it's great. You know, I've been out like a month, a little over a month now. And so much has happened for me beyond belief, really beyond belief, how grateful people have been helping me, you know, get myself started. I had somebody give me a brand new computer, and I was like, I don't even know how to, I couldn't even phantom that. <laughs> and then the new tectolo- technology has really blown my mind. Everybody and their kids have cell phones. <laughs> you know, I was at the bus stop, and a little kid had an iPhone, and I pulled out my little flip phone, and he looked at me like, damn, where you been? <laughs> I 
was like, wow, I think I have to get uh, a little bit more tech savvy. But it's been great. You know, the journey's still going. I'm a work in progress. But each day I take it as easy as I can. I don't try to do more than I can do because you only have 24 hours. And even though I've been clean and sober for 18 years, the record is only 24 hours. You know, so I just try to take it each day at a time and do it that way. And I'm grateful for my, <laughs> my best friend here that keeps me on the right road. But the good thing about it is there's people out there, you know, like you guys, that care. Because we didn't think anybody cared. You know, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of us, a lot of African-American role models out there that care about us, you know, unfortunately. So we have to get in where we can. You know, and as a human race, we're all brothers and sisters in that aspect. So I look at it that way. So thank you. So, so we'd be happy to take some questions. I also want to say that uh, Gil has been a very strong supporter. You know, he's brought in the chaplaincy groups and has seen the work inside, and so we're very grateful for that. And on the 20th, we're doing a day-long at the center where we're uh, going a little bit more in-depth with the practices around sitting in the fire and such that we've developed in, in San Quentin. And in the afternoon, we're doing a healing ritual, which is kind of a new thing for us. But so often in, in audiences like this, you know, people will raise their hand. And you know, and it's actually how we met Jenny, the, the woman who came into San Quentin, and say, you know, I was raped when I was 13. My father killed my mother. My stepson killed my son, whatever, right? And there's so much shame and silence around violence, the epidemic of violence, if I may say so, in our culture, that we thought, let's touch that. You know, and let's bring a posse of former San Quentin prisoners and some of them from the San Quentin Choir and, and do some healing together for people that have been hurt by violence, that have committed violence or both, and, and, or for people who want to support the whole notion that if one of us is violated, to that extent we're all violated. And, uh, and begin to own rather than sit there uh, feeling helpless watching the news, begin to own the violence in our society and, and create a response to it uh, in a humble, you know, simple way, but, but no less powerful. So on the 20th, that, that's our experiment here. Um, and, and also beginning to reframe that these prisons aren't just places that dump parolees on your streets but that they, they represent a resource and, and that we need to rethink some of the ways we you know, deal with the shadow in our culture. So we'll, we'll take some questions. practice meditation, Whitaker, is that... Dominique, uh, yes. Dominique, I'm sorry. Uh, do you practice uh, meditation? 
every day. Actually, I start my mornings off with meditation. Uh, this is a quick analogy I like to use. Um, I think all of us are homeowners to the greatest piece of real estate in the universe, our bodies. And every morning I like to come from outside on the lawn and go inside. And I could tell the days when I don't meditate, how I'm unbalanced throughout the day. But the days that I do meditate, meditate I'm pretty much level keel most of the day. But I always start my day off like that if I can remember, which my body usually wakes me up at 3.30 anyway to remind me. 3.30 is about the only quiet time you have in San Quentin. So. Please. Dominic, how have you been making the transition? I know that can be just the hardest part. You know, the first month, the first day, the first week. Very difficult at first. I thought it would be easy. But the first couple of nights, actually more than probably the first week, I couldn't sleep. Every, every sound that I heard from the birds or the garbage men, I was like, wow, what was that about? Or when a siren, a police car go by. I was like, we were at a, a, another speaking engagement, and there was a, it was a fire that was going on. And every time the fire trucks or the ambulance would go by, I was like, whoa, whoa. And everybody could say, yeah, I'm going to that after you. <laughs> so it's, it's a transition, especially, like I said, with the technology. For a while, I didn't even know how to cut my phone off. <laughs> you know, people was like, hey, you know, you got to cut your phone off. I was like, well, how do you do that? <laughs> you know, so it, it's a process. And then dealing with people, the thing I noticed biggest is that today people don't seem to really communicate with each other, you know, face-to-face. Everything's virtual. Everybody's texting this, all right. And I was writing letters, and then when I went to the post office, everybody was like, why this guy got a whole group, a whole handful of letters? Who the hell does that? (laughs) I still do. Um, Thank you both. This has been tremendously inspiring. It's, It's very wonderful to know that this work is going on. Um, not to minimize the work that you're doing with these long-termers, mm-hmm. but I'm curious, um, do you work with people who have more of a chance of coming out and bringing this stuff out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do. Most definitely. Do. Okay, the question was uh, not to minimize your work, but do you also work with shorter sentence people that have a chance to come out? And the, and the answer is yes. Um, what we like to do is to mix it up because there's some very fertile uh, cross-fertilization between the younger prisoners and the older prisoners. But I've also uh, uh, taken the stance that, um, you know, there's 32,000 life sentence prisoners in California. And uh, that group represents an unforgiven, forsaken group of fellow human beings that um, to not attend to is affecting us. It's not as visible as you think, but it's uh, very much uh, part of everybody's step. And so, um, you know, it's important, it's become important to me to, to serve that group of people. And the prison system, you know, is, is 
has some amazing data to it. You know, one in 104 Americans is in prison. One in 34 is either in prison, probation, or parole. That's like 7 million people for you. One in 28 school-going children has a parent incarcerated. If you're African-American, that's one in nine. If you're a male between 18 and 35, African-American, one in eight of you will do time, which means more go to prison than to college. We've spent over $10 billion on a, on a system that profits by its own failure. 64% of people leaving prison come back within three years. It costs 50 grand of your tax dollars and money. They spent less than a quarter percent in 2011 on programs. Um, so this this is, you know, epic proportions. I mean, I, I hate to blast these numbers at you here, but, but they're the reality of it. So... Um I've spent the last 30 years working with another group of people who are also touched by violence and who are also um, um, stereotyped by society, and that's cops. Mm -hmm. Um, And we do uh, a retreat for cops who have been damaged by the work they've done. Uh, And there's some remarkable parallels between what you're all talking about, and we have our own set of acronyms and our Mm -hmm. own statements such as uh, let go or be dragged it's one of the um, uh, somebody just tattooed that on their feet um, uh, or um, we had a woman that came through the program I did two weeks ago who said and it reminded me of what you were saying Dominique I had to teach myself to be tough in order not to be hurt and that's driven her her whole life blindly so my question to you is, would you welcome having some cops here on the 20th, if I can round some up? Hell yeah. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Right, no, I, I mean, because that's what it's all about, right? We're, we're in our own isolation and categories, the distance grows, right? And, and, and you know, the nation is becoming a bit of an alienation. So, so we look forward to that. We've always had parole officers on our teams, victims on our team, you know, because the whole us and them thing is nowhere stronger than in crime, right? And, and who's us if not but all humanity, and who's them if not your own insanity? I just wanted to remind everyone there's these beautiful flyers that are right out here on the table that explain about the program and the day long on Saturday of next week. Right. We take one last question up front here. Jack, can you hear me? Yeah. <clears throat> this question is for you. Okay. Um, I was curious uh, how this work has transformed you. Gotcha. It had to be the last gotcha. question. <laughs> I fall to my knees regularly in gratefulness as to how this work has touched me. You know, service is is a real way to knowledge. 
You know, it's it's not just oh, I had it good. Let me give something back. It's 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 a path. And uh, for me to have broken through the barriers of class and race and experience the privilege of being given someone's despair, because that's what it is, is a very very uh, incredible uh, gift to me. You want to be free, you know, help some other people be free. It works really well. And it's great to take, get off your safu, you know, and shake off your, your cowboy walk for having sat on it for a while. And, and uh, we made a lot of mistakes, and, and, and none of that matters, you know. So... Uh, you know, if you had any chance, if you had any thought of doing something that reaches out in service, let me encourage you to go for it. You know, and and you may not have the funds, and you may not have the structure, and go for it anyway. You will be helped. People will come under you and support you because it's contagious. It's the healed people heal people. Peace. You, you see that. And, and it will lift you. You know, you'd think innocently, uh, somewhat pedantic, maybe even in the beginning, you go in to help other people. Well, that's a lot of smoke and mirrors there. So, so yeah, thank you.